yesterday it mm. finally happened mm. you're finally free to run in slow motion with all the children <laughs> um singing the uh singing chariots of fire you mean yes yes <laughs> <laughs> your nightmare is over it the is bit. well i mean that one is there's lots of other nightmares still still going um yes yeah, i finally uh... finished a video that's been just kicking my ass from like up and down the street for a very long time to mm. the extent where i finished it months ago really and then there was just one really long special effect at the at the end and one very short but still tricky one at the start and then the thing where it zooms in on a photo of my face and my current mouth says back in time over it it's like little <laughs> little bits and bobs in it that took me a long time to do and just as i'd done them all i made the decision could you remember i was thinking to myself Perhaps I'll render this and then install my new graphics card. <laughs> yeah. And, and I thought, I won't do that. I'll install the new graphics card. Because in what universe could installing a new graphics card do anything wrong to a, to a like video project that's already saved and it's already set up? Now, I don't know for sure that it was anything to do with the new drivers that did it. But suddenly, everything was ruined. <laughs> yep. <And laughs> it was... Um, let this stand as a warning to myself in the future and to anyone else listening that it can happen and you probably should render uh, video projects you have on the go. Um, purely because um, the part of it that I suspect is to do with video drivers is that suddenly um, any clip that I happen to be using of that was like footage from a game, such as an arcade game or a Spectrum game, where the screen ratio wasn't exactly one of the, be one of the standard ones, so... 1920 by 1080 or whatever the equivalent is for 720p um if it exceeded those dimensions by a few pixels like let's say vertically then it wouldn't show up in the in the video project anymore other than as a green screen um and so i had to, there was there's a fix for that but it meant that all of my camcorder videos went became black screens instead of green um so i instead had to basically re-encode those videos in handbrake and uh, put them back in separately so yeah that went wrong but what was really weird what i found really really fascinating was so at the end i've set up the um the effect of the 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 picture at the end loading in exactly like a spectrum loading screen this is what took me a lot of time because i had an actual spectrum loading screen behind it and then i was i was basically using masks to uncover stripes of the picture i'd drawn one by one, right? That was how I was doing it. I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm informed there's a better way of doing it, but you have to be some sort of coder to do it. Um, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that where the solution is, oh, it's really simple. You just have to uh, spend years of your life learning to program, and then it's super <laughs> simple. <laughs> well, that that's one way of looking at it. Although it was presented to me in much kinder terms than that, it was presented oh. <laughs> to me by. Brandon Spanky Mills, who's mentioned at the end as one of the world's greatest decathletes, um, who basically was just like, oh, you should have given it to me. I'd have done it. And then he he, he knocked together a thing that would have done it. But I'm like, oh, <laughs> I've done it now. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, I'll, I'll basically be using his help if I ever do it again. Um, but um, uh, so that's so anyway, that effect, though, this is going to be difficult to describe, but I'm going to try. So the way mm. that I did it was that. I would. I actually had already cut up. I cut up the picture into slices. I probably shouldn't have bothered with that, but that, this is what I did. I cut the picture up into slices in Photoshop. Right. I then had because of the way that the spectrum loading screens would load in, they would load what the top strip of pixels on the screen. Then eight pixels further down than that, they would load one strip. Eight pixels further down than that, they'd load one strip, and they'd do this for the first third of the screen. Then they would load the second strip on each, you know, lot, and then the third, and then the fourth until they got up to the full eight well um so i saved these strips in a number of uh, dot ping images so that they were transparent and so that they had like so the first one was line one of the first chunk of eight line one of the second chunk of eight line two and then the next picture was line two and line two and line two and so i would be uncovering them in like that so having loaded those pictures in i then made rectangular masks which i put over the line and then at the point where the line should be fully uncovered, I, I, you know, moved the bar all the way over to there, and I let the uh, I let the program basically make in betweens. Um, so because you know it didn't matter exactly whether they travelled across the screen at the precise speed that they do in the real video of the Spectrum loading screen. Um, 
Now, I only figured this out about half, like, well, maybe a third of the way through. And up until then, I'd been doing frame by frame movements, matching exactly what happened every frame. Now, so now that you know that, imagine this. Imagine if somehow by some arcane, I don't know what interaction of driver and or maybe it was something I pressed. But imagine that the project suddenly decides that where it thinks frames are is half a frame to one side to where it had been up until then, right? Yeah, so, so it wasn't that, as far as I can tell, it wasn't that my clips moved by half a frame because you can't do that. Um, except with a, you, you can if you really, really try, and I don't think I did it accidentally. I think it's that genuinely the project moved its concept of where the frames are, what half a frame to the side for some reason. And what that means is that now, I've, so I've set up these careful frame by frame things, now it's showing half a frame alongs in automatically generated in between of that. So now a lot of the time it's fine for when the when the bar is simply moving across the you know the screen, it's still doing that. The problem comes, God, this is so hard to describe. I'm sorry. The problem comes when you hit the next frame where, having revealed one stripe, you then um go on to the next stripe, which has to be fully covered and then gradually uncovered. And what would happen then is that instead, because we're going by the in-betweens, you would see the mask that gradually uncovers them halfway diagonally to be covering up the next one, and the, the big mask that covers up everything else would be halfway traveling to cover up the next thing. So, in, so basically, all of the lines would flash fully onto the screen before disappearing and being revealed. Oh, it's been a nightmare. It took me ages to figure out what had happened to fix that. Anyway, finally... This video I've been working on for months is out, and I don't have to think about it anymore. Yeah. Hooray! <laughs> it was nice watching it and being reminded of that, oh yeah, Dave used to make nice edited videos that uh, like flow nicely and are nice to watch. I was like, when was the last time? It felt like a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I mean, the um, I've been doing them, but I've been doing them... Basically, I made the stupid decision because it was the done thing at the time. And I think everyone who, who did it has now probably made the same realization I have. That I, 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 built up a, I built up a following, right, on one thing. And then I went, I'm going to do some game videos like the Planescape Torment ones, um, the Way of Kings ones, book videos. And I went, brilliant. Well, I'll do this. But I don't want to annoy everyone who follows me and doesn't want those things because I haven't done them before. So I'll make separate channels for them. And to be fair, I got a decent amount of followers on on them, but you know, about like five hundred and some for the book one, and like a thousand and some for the video for the game one, which isn't really enough to bother doing it. <laughs> um, but that's where I've been practicing my editing and so on. Like my torment videos are well edited, at least most of them. They've got all sorts of silly things in them. Um, so I have been practicing, but exactly, yeah, I was like. God, I've not been using the, this YouTube channel. The last thing I did was, like you say, a year ago, my Learning to Settle video, which again was a video about like retro games, but but talking about Brexit through them. And it was good. I think that's a well-edited video. I think yeah. it's quite a good one. Um, so yeah, it's high time I got back into it. And uh, I know what the next few games I'm going to be doing videos of are. So hopefully I can do them a bit faster than that. Yep. Hoping that uh, everything goes... As it should, yeah. and uh, now I understand better <clears throat> why people who like edit videos professionally they often like they refuse to install or touch their hardware or software in any way whatsoever once it works and mm. when they're working on something mm. it's like well I'm in the middle of a project and like a bunch of critical uh, security updates came out and it's like no I'm not touching yeah. this configuration in any way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done that a lot of times. I've done that a lot of times. Um, it's why it's always, you know, whenever I've even had as, even so much as a new hard drive to install, I've, I've ended up with it on the desk for weeks or months before I plug them in because sometimes you just kind of don't know that you can afford to change anything on your computer at all. Mm. Because, and this is the thing, because I edit videos, also edit like, you know, audio things, podcasts, but also I do songs, also I draw comics, like everything that I do is a completely different set of skills with a completely different workflow. You know, drawing a comic is nothing like recording a song. And all of these are so complicated that you forget how to do them between doing them. So I have no idea how to make a song when I'm not currently making one. And I have to almost, like, 
not teach myself again, but like figure it out again, remember again, step by step going through it, be like, oh yeah, this. And you know, all of these problems that I had with this video, I've had them all separately before, individually with different videos. But I've never, oh, except for the one frame, uh, the frames being half a frame different thing. That was very weird. But um, I've never had them all uh, in one project at the same time before. And I found that I'd completely forgotten the solutions to everything that came up because, you know, I had to basically wing it and figure it out again the way I did initially. Um, yeah, because because once I, you know, if I've been drawing a comic for a bit, I can't remember how to make videos and vice versa. And it's real, real pain. So you do, you you leave everything set up exactly the way you left it because you like, that's my best clue as to how to do it. If I have to install, for instance, if I have to install Manga Studio again, I a, don't know how because they keep it. I've paid for it, but they there's one download URL which has since closed because they've changed the software or something, and I'm not entitled to the new version. So I have to like, it's, I essentially have to never install Windows again if I want to continue being an artist. Um, and because the new software is better, but it's a completely different system, I would have to relearn from the ground up, mm. um, and so on. It's a real pain in the ass. Yep. <laughs> I guess this is why George R.R. Martin still uses, like, I don't know, WordStar? Mm. <laughs> like a DOS computer? It will, yeah. No, it, it, it definitely will be, because he'll have he'll have it set up so that all of the, ev everything he ever needs to do will be a keyboard shortcut. He'll have all of his uh, files of, like, the, you know, the setup of all the different countries and what all the different names for everything is. He'll have that set up that he can call up in a single keystroke, even if he if he started using Scrivener, it would be easier. But to him, it wouldn't because he's got it all set up. Yeah, uh, it, it it would take probably months for him mm. to just get up to speed and working again. And that's right. And if he did that, it would be like it, it would be unacceptable because it would take him quite a long time to write each book. Then, if he did that, yeah, it would be ages before another one of his books came out if he did that. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, hello. Hey, morning. I guess I, I did, I did play a game, and I watched a couple of things, <laughs> and I wrote notes about them. Hooray! Oh, this will be a proper podcast again. Uh yeah. <laughs> anyway, so last year, Titanfall Two came out. Yeah, and it's a series that's been a Colossal failure. Yeah, you're going to have to remind me what Titan, what Titanfall is, because I always think of it as a James Bond film, and it isn't, is it? No. So, after Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2, the uh. original Call of Duty team kind of got into legal problems or disagreements with Activision. So, the original founders of Infinity Ward and, like, most of the development team left Activision and signed up with EA... And they started working on Titanfall. And that was like... This team had been working on... Like... Medal of Honor. Then Call of Duty. And Call of Duty 2. Call of Duty 4. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. So it's like... They've only been working on like... Real world combat first person shooters. Their entire careers. Pretty much. And now they had... The... Uh, the, the opportunity to like let's let's create our own like fantasy world thing and our our own completely new game here and like they they signed up with EA so it's like they they know we're the Call of Duty team so they have confidence that whatever we make will make them like a shit zillion dollars so we can work on this concept for however long we want and they had a smaller development team than usual so they had sixty five people working on the first Titanfall, and mm -hmm. I think the second one as well. But basically, there, there are about half the team size of um, usual game development. There's like uh, games like, like Deus Ex, Mankind, uh, Human Revolution, uh, all the Elder Scrolls games, and like Fallout 3 and Fallout 4. There are about, around 100, 120 people. So this is okay. about half of that. Okay, and and those are relatively small sizes because it's kind of once a team goes above, uh, significantly above a hundred, that's when AAA games usually go 
become the kind of super polished but bland paste that we get yeah. in these current games. Like, um, after Human Revolution was a success, they announced that, oh, we've taken on 200 more people to work on the sequel. It's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You're in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> and they were. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, around 100 people is when you can make a AAA game and still retain creative control to some degree. Yeah, because you're still, you're still communicating the people actually know each other and are on board with the same idea rather than just like, well, I'm coming in today to do my job, which is to make two assets. And then, you know, nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it is a different form of sort of creation, isn't it? Yeah, and it becomes very hard to coordinate at that point because like mm. Watch Dogs, uh, the first game was like, I don't know, a thousand people made it. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. What? Uh, and the communication between teams was very difficult there because uh, people who were working like outside the main team were trying to communicate with the main team like okay I made the interior of this cafe into a rough biker bar and some guy in the main team made the outside of the biker bar into a, a modern chic kind of cafe where they it's like parasols and like tables and everything like they don't match at all and just him this was a blog post by the guy who by a guy who worked on it to explain why there were like train tracks that led straight into nowhere where like if trains actually rode a train they would kind of go off the rails out into the streets <laughs> and he explained like why this was such a mess because he was just okay he he was just making this interior yeah. And just him trying to explain to the non-English speaking person on the main development team in Quebec <laughs> why it was wrong to put like you know, cute parasols outside the rough biker bar. Like you mentioned that it was a nightmare. It was like talking to someone who like doesn't care what you're saying, like almost like contradicts you. It's like he's deliberately misunderstanding you. Yeah, <laughs> like almost like almost like dismisses you out of hand, thinks you're talking shit. It's like, <laughs> and you can't tell really what he's saying because it's, it starts reversing into French. And he said <laughs> that it was like he found it to be laughable <laughs> the collaboration there. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you avoid that by yeah. having a hundred people working in the same building. <laughs> yeah. And um, with, with the original Titanfall, that's what they decided to do. Six to five people. And what these games do well, and the sequel does well too, is these this team, <clears throat> above all else, they are brilliant game designers. And okay. I feel like this is their strength and their weakness. They prototyped the hell out of the original game, making like they wanted to make something where like okay you're a pilot that moves kind of like mirror's edge but it's focused on movement so you have double jumps whenever you move near a wall you start wall running so you can like yes sprint jump and be near a wall start wall running and then like double jump and you can just very quickly like go from street level up to on top of a building and okay then they added robots to this and their idea, their inspiration was like, well, we wanted to make it feel like a used, kind of worn universe. So their idea was kind of like Star Wars, Blade Runner, crossed with like Ghost in the Shell. And that's kind of how it feels. It's okay. a bit like you took a Ghost in the Shell kind of robot and like weathered it to look like it belonged in Star Wars. Yeah. And the, all the motions and movements of like you entering and exiting the cockpit all that kind of stuff is wonderfully put together the it feels very smooth it feels very good and the way they've tweaked how the robot moves the limitations of it and how you can kind of use little, little rocket engines to like move to the sides to avoid rockets it's um yeah the, the just the game feel of this is uh like you, you almost couldn't do it better. It's extremely well polished and well put together, and it uh, feels uh, like something Platinum Games would do. <laughs> okay, yeah. it's a bit like I don't know. A the, first, the good, 
the good platinum games or the lazy platinum games? Uh, the good one. I, I was Hooray! thinking like uh, you, you cross over Vanquish with Call of Duty and <laughs> in a positive sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So it sounds good so far. Yes. The problem is that's all they did. So uh, in the first game, it uh, was multiplayer only. And uh, people criticize that because it's like, well, it's a full-priced game. Okay, yeah. so fair enough. This is a supremely polished game, but there's like there's not much to it. Yeah. And with the second game, they decided to okay, let's expand everything. So okay. we have a full single-player campaign this time. And this is why I bought the game because oh, it's on sale. It was on sale for uh, Black Friday or whatever, and it cost mm-hmm. like fifteen dollars. So <laughs> and. In the single-player campaign, the idea was to explore the relationships between the pilots and the robots. And so, during the game, you have dialogue prompts that pop up. Like, press X or V to choose this option or that option. And you talk with the AI in the robot. And the robot is written to, you know, interpret everything literally. It's like a military combat protocol droid, so there's a lot of humor there. But it's about yeah. like establishing the relationship between the pilot and the robot. And the the level design, this shows that they it's very well done. Just for example, the first level, it's about powering up your robot. <laughs> the 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 person who piloted the robot that you're going to take over. Uh, he's dead, so yeah, the robot is kind of idle in the middle of like a grove. And during the level, you kind of go out from this middle point in different arcs and pick up batteries. And <clears throat> you always circle back to the start of the level. And that way, you kind of go in routes and you explore and get used to the environment and get used to reading the environment in a different way. Because like in a combat encounter, it's like... You have to like unlearn how to look at the world from other games. In other games, it's like, oh, here's the cover, and that's where you sit behind, and mm. all the walls you can't do anything to, a building, that's where you go inside, and you're like, yeah. it's not a flat plane anymore. If there's a wall anywhere, you can just run on it and like jump on top of the building, and uh, while you're running on the wall, you can basically, you have to learn the mechanics in a way and i feel like they did it very well but there's a lack of anchoring you in basic human touches like a basic story that's lacking here right like the, the relationship between the pilot and the robot is the they focused on that that's fairly well done but i have some problems here like who are you playing who are you fighting for <laughs> what is this world who are the enemy I don't know. <laughs> okay, those are some pretty big oversights. I mean, yeah. I guess technically, in pure game terms, it doesn't matter. But we're all so used to games being a sort of story that you need to know. Yes, this is why it feels like a game designer-driven game. Because mm. everything that matters for game design, like the timings between like cutscene and play... Everything is like goes as rapid as possible. It's like it's been pared down to just the essentials of like, oh, here's a perfect game. But yeah. they missed that. You need more than that. <laughs> like, well, are we are we being fair? Because that you know, it is an interesting idea to have a pure game without there being a reason. I, I think, <clears throat> I think perhaps the reason that in this particular case it comes off as incongruous is that. They've given you these systems that are pure game systems, but they've already couched that as like, you get into the robot, you power up the robot. And so it, they've already given it just enough of a story that we want to know, well, who's you? Yeah, like the opening cutscene is a pre-rendered video where the main character narrates kind of how awesome these pilots are. It's kind of his ideal of what a robot pilot is. And then at the start of the tutorial mission, which is very well designed, um, you're a trainee and your mentor is this pilot that dies in the first mission and whose yeah. robot you inherit. And main character expresses surprise that the, in the simulator, this guy, his mentor guy, is kind of allowing him to go through the robot training because yeah. he, the main character isn't a pilot. So it's like, Okay, you have a person here that's supposed to have an arc, but 
you don't know where it came from like what does it like why do these pilots exist even why are they admirable what's their role in the world and what is this war <laughs> it's like just a little bit more yeah. would have solved this like in the training simulator you're kind of in a holographic thing uh, you're you go through like you see the real world and then you go into the simulator and like a green thing kind of signals that a neural connection is being made to a holographic training simulator but you don't see anything really outside the main world apart from your mentor kind of leaning into the uh, training uh, machine i would have liked it to be like before you go to the simulator or, or either after the tutorial you get out of there and then you have a short bit where you walk on the ship of the uh, faction you're fighting for and you get to see a bit like okay what is this world you've had the tutorial bit where you get to run around and fight and uh, do piloting tutorial stuff but i want some context here like <laughs> Just a little bit of like voiceover, a little bit of visuals. Yeah, it only needed to be like a couple of minutes. <laughs> yeah. Instead, they've paced the cutscene and storytelling the same way they did in the Call of Duties. But in Call of Duty, they could get away with it because everything there was based on real-world stuff. Yeah. So yeah. you already knew like the context of everything. Like, oh, it's a more war in the Middle East. Like, yeah. I know who, who you, I'm. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm an American fighting in the Middle East in the 2000s. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> but here's like a fantasy setting with robots. Uh, yeah. I, I need some more here. I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm like halfway through the game, and like the arc of the story is learning the basic premise of the game that they should have told me in the first five minutes of the game <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um yeah it's been kind of mysterious trying to suss out like how something that's so wonderfully designed can also at many times just be super bland and yeah. nice trivia this is as far as i know the only game since uh, i don't know portal 2 that's been yeah. used making Valve's source engine. Oh, wait, hang on. Okay, when Portal 2 came out, there was a lot of pushback against them using that engine because of how limited and old it was. And it meant that they could only, you know, they could only make a little bit of room before they had to have a loading screen and things like that. Have they, have they managed to avoid that somehow? Uh, no, I think they just use more RAM on the consoles and that's how they yeah. make bigger levels. But yeah. I feel like you... People use people who make games mm. usually sneer at the audience who are able to tell which engine a game uses and that they care which engine they use. But yeah, each engine comes with like presets made by the creators that like it takes a lot of time to make a game. Mm. So all developers to some extent use like in Unity, everyone uses the inbuilt lighting system. That's why yeah. when I play something made in unity i can tell just from the aesthetic like okay the, the light falls like this on the walls i can see that oh this is this is unity game because the light falls like it does in every other unity game <laughs> and in uh, unreal engine 3 games uh, every game used to have a certain type of look to their shading and texturing because everyone used the pre-built shading uh, appearance it was yeah. only like very few games like i don't know bioshock and stuff like that that where they took the time to rebuild and redo everything from scratch but like normal games that are made in like two years don't do that yeah and in titanfall and titanfall 2 you can feel that the movement and input lag and like everything feels like a valve game like everything has the very rapid uh, responsive feel it feels really nice i was gonna say yeah the feel of, of valve games is a good feel and yes. even though it might be old-fashioned now i imagine it probably feels sort of in a good way like kind of nostalgic yes it, it feels like refreshing it feels like oh i'm playing a proper game <laughs> yeah 
because like uh, you know the basic subsystems of how like player input is interpreted by the engine <laughs> yeah. and how mouse movement is interpreted all that is kind of that, that came with the engine so they they left that <laughs> yeah anyway so yeah and but there's there's a few things like i feel like they didn't go far enough in the aesthetics bit like things like the way something basic like a metal grating how that looks Metal gratings have had a certain appearance ever since they were invented in game rendering in like 2004, 2003. <laughs> like Far Cry 1, Doom 3. All games can look exactly the same with the, like the metal gratings. If they don't do anything inventive with their art design. And Titanfall 2 does that. So it's like you, you walk into a big open space. It will of, often look amazing because they... Uh, did concept work and then they just rendered that concept work there. So it's like whoever designed this world on like a macro scale did a great job. But in the most immediate, like just looking at the wall, looking at the floor, all that is the most bland, boring, generic appearance a game can have. <laughs> that means that if someone walks into you just playing the game where you're in a ro normal room, fighting a normal enemy, yeah. they can't tell this is Titanfall 2 unless you wall run or there's a robot on screen. It <laughs> looks like, oh, what is that? Is that like a the most generic first-person shooter ever made by human hands? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a problem. <laughs> like, yeah. Even if it would have been arbitrary, I would have been like, just make everything look different just for the sake of it. So it has a more distinct personality. Yeah. And I don't know if this is part of like what they learned when working at Activision about how, how do you make a game that sells? Make it the most generic bland paste possible. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. So it's like, I, I, don't, I don't blame the audience for like passing on this because on so many levels, just when you look at it, it's like, yeah, why should I care? It's like, what's the premise? Oh, the developers yeah. didn't know. What does it look it, how like? Is, is there any... Are they expecting that everyone will remember Titanfall 1 and know all this stuff from then? Is that why they're skipping it over it? I don't know. They, they were expecting the second game to sell more than the first one. But yeah. the second game sold one quarter of what the first game did. Oh, dear. Yes. That's always like, whoops. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it got a good critical response. And, like, the, the the two people who played it are raving about it. I've seen, like, multiple <laughs> YouTube video essays about the game saying that, oh, it's a wonderful game. That's why I decided to buy it when it was $15. <laughs> yeah. And now I see why. Because uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a great game. But at the same time, like, it's, it's kind of odd feeling... Yeah. Like playing it and acknowledging it that it's one of the most wonderful game, wonderful designed games in the genre, but also feeling kind of apathetic about it because there's a lack of like the basic like where's the heart? Where's my? Why do you? Why don't you spark my imagination somewhat here? Yeah, like, I, I want more. <laughs> Just a game isn't enough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like older games like Shogo. A game from 98, 99, yeah. uh, made by Monolith, the people who made like a Shadow of Mordor and stuff. It, it was like an anime-inspired uh, mecha game where you played as a soldier running around and then you walked around in a giant robot. So <laughs> in that, there was a segment where you wake up on the ship and then you walk to a briefing and then you walk uh, to the... Uh, robot bay and you get to choose between two different uh, three different robots and that a branching plot like a game from like the 90s a first person shoot from the 90s had a more ambitious world building and story than a game from 2016 yeah <laughs> that's what at the point where like people didn't even know how to do story in a first person shooter yet it's yeah it's <laughs> You don't need much, do you? But no. you know, because everything you need to know could be done without cutscenes, without lore. It could just be done with a few objects placed here and there. There was a bit. Okay, mm. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a game that I've played that I think does storytelling quite well called The Witcher Three. Um, oh, and yeah, no, I'll tell you about it sometime. It's a good game. 
But um, Abby was playing it uh, the other day. She sort of started it again, and she's now that we've now that we've got a better video card, she's really like doing it. Yeah. And uh, um, she got to a bit. And this is very early on, and it was completely done organically. There was nothing guided us to see any of this. Um, she's wandering around, just wandering around on her travels, and she finds a little house. And she goes in the little house and finds on the bed what is obviously a mother and child dead on the bed. There are flies going around these 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 corpses. They're not selectable. You know, it doesn't say, you know, peasant woman or whatever. So you like, oh, dear, they're dead. And we but because usually there would be a bit more than that, it made us look around for more. So we're looking around the house going, OK, so we've seen these two corpses. There's nowhere nowhere else in the game that has something like that. So that's weird. So what's going on here? And we have a little look around and we find nothing. They don't have any like belongings particularly that are interesting apart from, you know, just a couple of things to acknowledge that they exist. So we're like, oh, OK, I, they died for some reason together. She then walks out of the house and outside the house as placed so that you can see it immediately in front of you as you leave the, the house out of the front door. But there's no reason for you to happen to see it on the way in is a man hanging from a tree. And suddenly, you're you're making up all these stories about what happened here. And, you know, my initial thought was that he killed them and then himself. But then that you, you realize that you were just reading a note a little while ago about these people who suspect that there's a werewolf somewhere in the area. And then you find another one a little bit later saying that there was and they've tracked him down and and like killed him and his family in the, in the hut and i still and now this was abby's game i was doing something else so i'm still not totally sure whether that is the same story but i think it is and either way you're free to sort of it's storytelling and they didn't have to tell it if we hadn't read those notes we would have had the basic story about these two people died and this guy died and then we could infer either he killed them and, and then himself or he they were all the victim of something else it, that's all you need. It went because it doesn't matter what the story is in in almost any game. But if they just give you something to interpret, suddenly it feels great. Yeah, I mean, e even if you do it like a almost like a subliminal thing, like where most yeah. people might run past it, but it's there if you look. Yeah. But here, there's like nothing. Like, okay, you're on a planet. What is this planet? I don't know. And oh, you're, now you're in a sewage treatment plant. Okay. Yeah. There's a civilized world. Who is this here? Is there any story here? Nope. Oh, <laughs> now you're in a different place. You're in a factory. What? What is this? I don't know. This is a real cool place to run around and jump on all the machines. But why? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I feel so almost like I'm fortunate because for a game that's as well designed as Titanfall 2 to like fail on like the basic like connecting with the audience like establishing like why they should care whereas other games might lean too far in the other direction where they overdo the story stuff and they don't understand uh, like how to do brevity and and yeah. they get a lot of shit from that from game designers who only want to play the game <laughs> yeah but this has gone too far in the other direction where it's like oh pure game but give me something yeah anyway so on your recommendation, I watched The Good Place. Oh, yeah. I love The Good Place. How did you get along with it? It was great. Yeah. And it was also... I feel like it's perfect to end after the first episode of Season 2. Yeah. Because let me tell you, nothing else happens in Season 2 except more of that. Yeah, and the final line of Season 2's uh, 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 pilot, it's almost like it intimates that okay we're now in a cycle where this will go on forever it's almost like it's a perfect place to end so yeah this show i was pleased with many things like the story kept moving forward yeah it's, it's had, isn't, that, isn't that a refreshing refreshing change for this sort of show yeah so it's a it's a sitcom with 20 minute episodes but it's almost it's structured like when when people uh i, I usually get the uh, get my eye rolling on whenever people say that oh stranger things it's an eight hour movie it's like oh fuck <laughs> off <laughs> but it's it says a bit about the general structure of uh i guess the the, the arc it's just okay it's a self-contained season yeah 
Like Dexter. Dexter wasn't like 10 hour movies. It was self-contained seasons, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and The Good Place feels like that, where it's like, it's like a really long arc or quote-unquote a long movie where yep. it actually it keeps moving forward each episode it's the story advances and changes and complicates the situation it doesn't fall back on like a, a routine yeah that's it and then at the end of the season two pilot it 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 ends at a place where they are kind of trapped in a routine and that's the perfect place to end it because that's kind of the point of that episode and the, the final little sting of it. It feels like, okay, now this will go on forever. <laughs> I and mean, they, they didn't need to film anymore, but I guess they had a whole season two to fill out. So, yeah. I mean, for an example of, um, I'm trying to think of a way to say this that isn't spoilery in case anyone else hasn't watched The Good Place yet. But, um, so. You can probably imagine yourself a way in which, very quickly after that first episode of, of Series 2, um, arrangements are made so that all of the same characters are, as in Series 1, are hanging out together, doing much the same thing as they did before. Um, and so and, and so the, the story basically continues, but with this slightly new changed premise now. And... Um, to give you an example of how rote it gets, because it doesn't, it doesn't, it never gets awful. All the characters remain who they are. It, does, it never like betrays itself. So it's not that I hated series two. I didn't. But series one, as you said, constantly moves the story on. But series two, the episode where it really set in for me that this was just a normal sitcom now, was one in which Ted Danson's character has a midlife crisis and he buys a sports car and he get and he he dresses janet up to be his sexy girlfriend and they have to like teach him how to get out of a midlife crisis and he and he there's loads of jokes where he suddenly just will sort of start crying and and then he'll go off and get a haircut or something an earring and things just any sitcom could do that episode it has nothing yeah. to do with the with the good place and the premise of the good place at all and it just takes me back to the first, sorry, I'm sniffly this morning. I'm, I'm developing in cold, but I haven't yeah. got one yet. The first time I really noticed this in anything, it was in Black Books, which was sort of what, um, oh, thingy Glenna did between Father Ted and the It crowd. And um, the first series of it was great. And it felt like, you know, when Father Ted or the It crowd were at their best, the, this was another one of those. But then in series two, the moment it really set in was when they had an episode where Bill Bailey's character, they all had to pretend that he was the manager of the shop because his parents were coming over and he told them that he was the manager of the shop and an important businessman and they all had to pretend. And that episode could be in and is in nearly any sitcom. And it just was so obviously wrote. And you can always tell when the... You know, when, when what made... Uh, a show unique has now just they're just sort of still going now we are on a hiatus so I, I wonder if they found out they were they had an enforced hiatus mid-season of series two and just went all right spin the wheels for the first half we'll do the real series two in the second half i'm hoping that's what it is yeah because uh apart from that i mean first season there were so many things that did well i mean first nit a nitpick though yeah the theme tune sucks I can't remember a theme tune. Yeah, uh, every time the the title shows up, the good place. There's like a three seconds uh, of a musical theme. Oh, and uh, if you're doing a sitcom with like a three second theme, why do you have to make like something that feels like it was thrown together by someone over the weekend? Maybe the director, while he was like, I don't know. Let's <laughs> let's 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 learn this music thing. Oh, let's play like a scale up. Uh, okay, <laughs> well, <laughs> great. It, 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 I can I can well believe it because I literally don't even know there's a theme tune in it, so it must not leave much of an impression. Yeah, kind of annoyed. Why why did mu musical themes have to go away? Why did memorable music have to go? I know, and if they have to, I I get why they might have to go away. For instance, you know the format has changed. We're watching something on Netflix now, so we're all binging it. If that's the case why not make it native to that? 
the my one nitpick about the good place is that it's obviously designed to be watched on Netflix. It's you know it's short episodes that run into one and like that one episode will start the split second after the last one ended, and yet they'll have a recap sometimes, not always, but sometimes they'll just have like, what do you mean you're there? You know they'll be they'll recap the thing that the person just dropped the bombshell the the person just dropped as the twist, and you go, everyone has w- watched that just now. You don't need to put it that way. You don't need to do it like that. And you don't need a quick theme tune because we know what we're watching because we selected it. All that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, you know, bad music reminds me again of Titanfall 2 where ah. they made a choice of having just b- bland noise. Like, okay, so it's an orchestral noise. It's in theory music, but it's a, the kind of music where it's like now and then you notice that, oh, yeah, there's music playing in the background. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 and when you when you have the budget of that, like just a generic nothing, it's a choice. And whenever you decide that one element of your me- media production is going to be let let's design let's decide here that music is gonna be let's have it be nothing, uh, not nothing. It's gonna be there because you have to have music, but it's gonna be. You don't notice it. It doesn't say anything. There's no themes. There's nothing. It just uh, uh, underscores our um, mood intent here. Yeah. That's it. There's no there's nothing else to it. But at that point, you have to have something else balance it out because you yeah. decided to, I don't know, throw one element uh, of your toolbox in, in the trash, effectively. Like there's, yeah. there's several games where that relied entirely on its music to like string people along like yeah why would you do that a- anyway so yeah. <laughs> back to the good place it does have uh, everything else bouncing it out like for example um it has good editing one episode yes. i think it was episode 10 ends with a person entering the scene looking around he, he gets a short explanation from the others of what's going on he looks very confused, and then it says, what? And then it's like, smash, cut to end cr- titles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, that was very good. V- very good timing for that. Uh, I, I, it feels like someone actually spent time like editing, re-editing it. So like, how do we get the most comedic effect out of cutting away from this scene to the next one? Or cutting from this what to just end titles? <laughs> yeah. They did it properly. Yeah, it's a really well-made show, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm, I'm... it's 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 weird to watch how good it is. It's you sort of go, why don't they all just do this, or why? How you sort of go, where did these people come from, and how did they get these skills that don't seem to have come from TV because that doesn't have it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 a happy accident of the right people coming together, being allowed to do the right thing. Yeah. Like a, a pleasant surprise after the first episode and the subsequent episode was that yeah, this is a story you can absolutely spoil. Yeah, because you see why I was reticent to like tell you the 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 premise of the first episode. Yeah, because like the, the, unraveling what's really going on is a, a really important part of the story and uh, yeah, what's really going on with the characters. I mean, so the main character is in this. Uh, afterlife where she's not supposed to be and some of the most funny stuff is all her flashbacks to her real life yeah where they show it's clear the writers had fun coming up with like what's the worst person in the world so it's like the main <laughs> character she's not breaking the laws she's not murdering yeah. people but she is the most vapid, self-centered person on the planet that also has the worst friends in the world. Yeah. And they just... It's so funny seeing them, like, being blight on the, like, humanity. <laughs> With everything they do to, to each other and the world. It's like... <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that I find refreshing about it is that in another sitcom, that same person would be presented as like not not a not a person to emulate not a good person but a person who's sufficiently entertaining to watch 
that the show wouldn't condemn them particularly, other than to just go, look, a silly person. Whereas this gives you that satisfaction of laughing at the silly antics and so on. But at the same time, its whole premise is you shouldn't be like this. And here's like the sitcoms focus is on is nicer than that. Whereas a lot would just go, oh, we've had an idea. A comedy character who's horrible. Ta-da! That's our idea. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so much better than that. Yeah, it's, a, it's about her struggle to not be the most horrible person who ever lived. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's not, it's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> and as you learned more about all the side characters, their flaws kind of grew and became bigger. And that was also really funny. Yeah, to, to the point where everyone is just uh, like a nervous wreck, o- only acting on their worst impulses all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, uh, good place. Really recommend it. And first season and the first episode of season two, that's perfect. Just watch all of that and then stop. Yeah. So until until it starts up again, and then we'll see. Yeah, yeah. but I feel like well, I got. I got enough from this. Mm-hmm. This was really good. I've seen it. <laughs> I'd have to be convinced to continue yeah. watching. It'd really have to go somewhere worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. I, I Apparently... Okay, I nearly skipped ahead two sentences then. To me, it seems like what happened is they had a great idea. They followed it through to its, essentially, conclusion... Found out they were getting a series two, put a cliffhanger at the end of series one to make you watch it, disappointingly, because otherwise it would have been a wonderful, perfect little package. But then again, also, when you get to the end of series one, the story, it would be awful if the story just ended there. And it's like, yeah, that's that's where they are. That's what we're doing. Um, but like, you know, it, they basically it, it, they, it kind of demanded a series two, but there isn't any scope for a series two because the premise has been exhausted so they essentially they've got to come up with a new one and they haven't yet now the reason why i the reason why i sort of said now then is because apparently the whole thing all the way through series one was all along developed with the series two premise in mind so apparently this is the real thing now we're on to the real thing now and it's what they always had in mind but it just seems so much weaker than the how good series one was because mm. there was mystery, there was story development. Now it's like we've just that basically we know it all now. It's all been sorted out. So now we're all just still here. Um, so which is what makes me think that they do actually have something else that they're going to pull out because if this was always planned all along, it doesn't feel like it is. So we must be missing something. It, it must not be here yet. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. For the tonal opposite, I watched Detroit. It's I don't a, know what that is. It's a movie that came out last year uh, to land like a thud. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, nobody cared about this. It's okay. from the director and writers of Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. And this is about the 1960s uh, race riot in Detroit. And, uh, All of all of those things make it sound like a film people would watch. Yes, and it got generally good reviews, but uh, it performed really poorly. It made $20 million in the box office. Right. Um, anyway, I kind of don't really enjoy um, Catherine Bigelow's films. Like, Zero Dark Thirty... It's and Hurt Locker. They they have the same strengths and the same weaknesses. So the strengths are the way she and her writing body kind of puts together action sequences, kind of procedural action and kind of violent stuff. That's it's really well put together technically, but there's a, like a lacking. They always feel kind of heartless. It's almost like all yeah. their fascination is within the violence and the action. So Zero Dark Thirty feels weirdly kind of glorifying of like military violence and torture because there's absolutely nothing to the characters in that film. <laughs> yeah, I think that <clears throat> I think that Zero Dark Thirty was was trying to make you feel that there was no I, I I don't think it was trying to glorify it. I think it was trying to condemn it. But it's sufficiently 
because it's so procedural and because mm. the people in it are so like just getting on with their jobs. Um, I remember when I watched it, someone over in Digi said, like, jokingly, I think, but said, like, oh, are you a fascist now? <laughs> yeah, it leaves too much room for interpretation for that to feel like, yeah, yeah, someone could read this film that way. <laughs> it feels like a, a praise of torture and violence and murder. It, it kind of feels that way. And, and yeah. Hurt Locker, that, again, it's good procedural. There's, like, a sniper battle that was well done, but they... The character's story, it was like, pfft, eh, no. I wasn't feeling it. It didn't feel sufficiently human enough. It didn't feel plausible enough. And in this movie, where it's police violence against uh, African-Americans, it unfortunately has the same problem, where it mm. feels like it has a fascination about just showing violent beatings of people and... The, the heart of it, it feels almost cartoony. It's too transparent, the the intent of the film, because the casting of the characters, all the police people who are the bad guys, look like prototypical southern racist hicks. Right. And all the good white people look like respectable, upstanding, attractive people. And right. all the black people who are being uh, beaten down look like movie stars. Right. <laughs> so... The the intent is too transparent there. It, it needed to make everyone look just a bit more ordinary so yeah. you can take it more seriously. So it feels like it's a, more like a real story. <laughs> yeah, because it make that sort of casting makes it feel like um like something that can only that, that, that it's all right, everyone. This is only happening in a film. Yeah, and at the same like, time, you know, like sort of sort of like like Independence Day or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the intent is just too transparent just from the casting alone and then every all the actors try their best yeah but the material like the characters are again super thin there's almost nothing to them not the police not the people living there like there's one character maybe in like movie that's two and a half hours long yeah like an hour of it is almost like a real time play out of like a an incident in a motel where some people were shooting a toy gun at the the, the local police and military and the, the cops show up there and kind of try to find the sniper shooter there and their gun and they use a lot of violence completely unjustified and then kind of to try to justify their presence there they can line up everyone against the wall and they beat them up and almost like do mock executions to try to find out to make them tell them where the gun is but the gun doesn't exist <laughs> and all of that it's just yeah it's horrific violence but it's just, it feels so empty and so you yeah. go away from the film it's like okay this movie had added absolutely nothing to the subject matter or the event <laughs> uh. yeah Oh well. Yeah, uh, and it feels like oh, it's it's typical. They 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 need to elevate their game. Yeah. I don't know if it's the writer's fault, the writer's fault, or the director's fault, or just their collaboration doesn't work. But they keep making movies together. They enjoy working together clearly, and they they get all the awards, so they think it's working. But I don't think it is. Ah, uh, I see. This is a Tim Burton Johnny Depp situation, isn't it? Yeah. They. They're too high on their own farts. <laughs> they don't. They, they they can't take a step back and see that. No, you have huge flaws in your films. <laughs> I can absolutely get it though. Like, um, if you were a human being as we are, and by whatever circumstance, as long as you worked with this particular person, you get to be a movie maker. You know what I mean? I can see yeah. why you would keep doing it and not step away from that. Yeah, and like the just the production production values are fine. Like they got John Boyega in it. He's a likable uh, person. Yeah, but he's, I like him a lot. Yeah, his, his character there's nothing to him. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, that's a film I'll forget, forget very quickly. <laughs> oh well, it's a good job we covered it today then before you forget it. Yeah. <laughs> well, There's a warning where it feel like no, it's not actually worth watching. You can skip it. Yeah. Fair enough. I will. Yeah. Or will I? What if I forget and then I watch it? Yeah. What if I go, I've heard of this film. I bet, therefore, it's good. 
Yeah, and you watch it, and it's like, oh, that that was a procedural. Events occurred in sequence, and the violence <laughs> was well rendered, and it added nothing. <laughs> like, what? Racism is bad. Got it. <laughs> At least if I accidentally watch it, um, I won't then remember that I have. Mm. So it'll be just as just as if I didn't. Yeah, it'll be like people who are kidnapped by aliens, or rather, they yeah. have blanks in their memory, and people who claim they were uh, abducted by aliens are people who just fill in those blanks in their memory with the uh, fiction. And if you exactly. do it properly, you can implant the memory so you think it's real. Exactly. So, are you saying that if I watch this film, I will think I've been abducted by aliens, and I'll start to remember very clearly what the aliens looked like and stuff. Yeah. Great. That sounds cool. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so you got the video down. Yep. What else? Yep, have... that's my... Yeah, I wish I could sort of weigh in and be like, well, this week I watched this, and I played this, and I did this. But basically, I just worked hard. Yeah. I made the video. A week? I... A week isn't that much time. It's not. No, I really didn't get anything done this week other than, you know, achieving a goal, which is great, but there's just not much to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you, you exhaust your productive hours with something, and then you can uh, you're lazy, you lazily watch stuff on YouTube and play a game where that you have nothing interesting to say about, and that's it. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I can talk about, though. Um basically in order to celebrate the fact that i'd finished this this video i did a stream yesterday did you see no uh you i saw that you were streaming but at the time i couldn't watch because i was busy taking a shower and going to bed and sleeping (laughs) yeah well what i was playing was a game called slightly magic which i got for my birthday or something in 1990 i want to say two which is when it came out and it's basically, uh, imagine, so you know the Dizzy games? Yeah. It's like that, except it's made by, rather than just being a direct sequel. So, for example, they made a, a kind of an offshot of Dizzy called Seymour, which was, I actually think that they, I seem to remember there was some reason why they wanted to make a Dizzy game, but they didn't, they, there was only so many of those that Codemasters would allow in a year, so they changed the character very slightly and just made another one anyway. Um, that's what Seymour was, but Slightly Magic was uh, made by a separate person who must have played the Dizzy games and enjoyed them and come up with his own idea. And it's completely his. And you're this little wizard. You're walking around in a castle and you are trying to get spells. And these all... uh, These are made out of two objects. So uh, there'll be like a spell which is like a cloud with a little picture of something in it. So for instance, a fish... And then there'll be an item that pertains to that spell. And you just have to, you know, go, oh, I bet that's for that spell. So, for instance, the one for the fish spell is a fish bowl. And when you found them both, the spell is now active and you can turn into a fish. And there are there are things you can turn into a bird, a fish, a uh, flea, things like this. And these help you to get, solve puzzles and get past places. And of course, there's also the usual, like, pick up an object, put it somewhere to use it. Puzzle solving that you get from Dizzy. And... And some brilliant Alistair Brimble music. And it's just a good game. Really good game. Really polished. You know, it's for the Spectrum, but it's really polished. And uh, so I've been playing that. It's currently... I don't have it, but it's currently available on Steam. Because uh, Colin... And I always forget his second name, but the bloke who made it, Colin... uh, Has basically done it up. I think he did a Kickstarter. And he's uh, sort of remade it for Steam. But he hasn't... You know, it's not like, oh, now there's sort of modern graphics. It's still the original graphics. All he's done is he's made it that, like, there's no color clash now. There's um, more pieces of music, depending on where you are. So it's like if you could make a Spectrum game on an imaginary Spectrum that doesn't have the the sort of the, the drawbacks that the real Spectrum did. Uh, so I actually haven't got that. So I'm playing the, the original version, uh, you know, because that's my version. That's what I want to play. I, I want the Steam version. I just don't have it yet. Um, and it's just fascinating because I'm getting further than I ever did when I was a kid. And that might be because, you know, I'm cleverer or something. It's probably because I've got save states because you die all the time and, you know, you're having to sort of experiment. There was a bit in uh, yesterday's game where I got the fish spell and 
the second you go in the water, which is really difficult to find, it's this totally the only way of the only well, maybe not the only way of finding it, but the only way that I found it <clears throat> was because <clears throat> I got to the point where I'd tried everything except using a watering can on this random patch of yellow on the ground that hurts you. And I don't know what that's supposed to represent, but it worked. That opened up the sea somehow. I actually tweeted him on the stream. I was like, I found him on Twitter and I'm like, what is going on with that puzzle? Um, but once you're in the sea and you're a fish, you'd think you'd be fine. But no, your life is draining all the time, or at least your magic's draining. So maybe the implication is that the spell only lasts a certain time and then you turn into a human and lose a life. But I don't think it's possible to do all the stuff you have to do in that sea area without losing all but one of your lives. I genuinely think you've got to do that. Unless you know the exact route and can do it exactly, which I suppose in those days is what you would have done. You would have died, gone back to the start of the game, died, gone back to the start of the game, and you're supposedly learning the route. But this was further than I was you know, able to get from as a kid from starting at the beginning of the game. Um, so I'm just save stating, but there's no, you know, I, I got it wrong. I didn't save state before the water. I save stated in it, so I, I couldn't get it finished in time. Um, so I'm still alive, but I've just got my last life left. Um, and it's, anyway, point is, it's a good game. I'm really enjoying it. And it's like, get, there are games that were made in, on the ZX Spectrum in 8-bit graphics that are good and that you might as well play now. And this is one of them. It's a good game. I, I recommend it. It's on Steam for five quid. Slightly magic. Go ahead. Try it. Mm. Very old-fashioned, but if you can get over that, or if you like that, I think most people would quite enjoy it. Yeah, and uh, it being old-fashioned is a part of the charm, because it's yep. like, oh, it's like a game from a different world, which is nice, because the newer games might feel like they're from the wrong world. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we do feel as if we're in the wrong world, and exactly. Hmm. I'm going to stop.